As you may or may not know about me, I love to collect uh, little quips and quotes off of the internet, bumper stickers, plaques, and so on. And this past week as I was preparing for today's lesson, I handpicked a few of them pertaining to this subject of stewardship and especially the area of money management. I thought I would share them with you this morning. This one I thought was cute. Last night I read a book that brought tears to my eyes. It was my checkbook. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) I don't live within my income because I can't afford it. (laughs) Somebody said. Yeah, that's the problem. The buck stopped before it got here. (laughs) Money talks. It says, goodbye. Two can live as cheaply as one, but only half as long. (laughs) I've told couples that. A budget is a system of reminding you that you can't afford the standard of living you've grown accustomed to. (laughs) Banks are peculiar institutions that urge you to save as much as possible of what you make and then borrow as much as you can spend so you can spend more than you make. (laughs) That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Income is a small matter to me, (laughs) especially after taxes. Yeah, down the drain it goes. Here's the definition. IRS, we've got what it takes to take what you've got. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Well, this morning, as we continue our series, Life by the Book, I want to take a closer look at what the Bible says about money. You realize how often the subject of money management stewardship is addressed in Scripture? The Bible refers to prayer about 500 times, to faith about 500 times, but to money and possessions over 800 times. Isn't that interesting? 16 of Jesus' 38 parables are concerned in one way or another with the stewardship of of money and things. I got to figure, (laughs) if I preach the same ratio that Jesus preached, I'd have to preach 22 Sundays a year (laughs) on the subject of how we handle money and possessions. And that's not counting, by the way, the other teachable moments besides his parables when Jesus grabbed the opportunity to address this subject of stewardship. And one classic example would be right here in today's text. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Mark chapter 12, we pick the story up in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on classic story. We'll come back to it here in just a little bit. Do you realize that a recent Gallup poll says the 64% of all families argue 
over money. I read that and I, I started laughing. I said, yeah, the other 36% are lying. <laughs> More than half of the divorces in our country today are related in one way or another to finances. And the reality is that only 90%, about 90% of all Americans are only one paycheck away from bankruptcy. If they lost their job this week, they'd have to file bankruptcy next week because they're living paycheck to paycheck. There's no reserves in savings. And folks, the honest truth is that most of us don't handle our money as well as we could. And that's why we need to review what the Bible says about money. I mean, as we've said all along, when all else fails, read the directions. And God has given us some pretty clear practical directions right here in His Word. And perhaps nowhere in the Bible are those directions more concise than in the book of Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, who was, by the way, let's not forget, the wisest and the richest person to ever live, he knows what he's talking about when he speaks on financial matters. And Solomon wrote over 80 Proverbs about the stewardship of our money and things. And so, using the book of Proverbs kind of as our primary reference point today, let's keep this morning's lesson pretty simple. First, let's look at money problems, and then second, let's look at money solutions. Let's begin with money problems. Would you read uh, Proverbs 17 and verse 16 out loud with me? Let's read this together. Of what use is money in the hand of a fool since he has no desire to get wisdom? Well, we don't want to live there, do we? We don't want to be foolish when it comes to how we handle our money and our possessions. And so from the book of Proverbs, we can identify five very basic money problems that we all face in our everyday lives. Number one is the values problem. Sometimes our perspective about money is so warped that it really completely messes up our whole sense of values and priorities in life. I heard this last week about a guy who had just parked his nice, shiny, brand new BMW up against the curb, and he opened his door to get out, and right as he opened his door, a car went by and ripped the door right off of his Beamer. And a passerby stopped and asked him, Are you all right? And he's just sitting there going, Oh, my Beamer. Oh, my Beamer. And then all of a sudden, with horrified, huge eyes, the passerby goes, Oh my gosh, your left arm is missing! And the guy goes, Oh, not my Rolex, too. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, there's some things in life that should be valued a little more than our money and our possessions. Look at the wisdom of Solomon on this matter. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Isn't that true? Yes. Proverbs 17, verse 1. A dry crust eaten in peace 
is better than steak every day along with argument and strife. Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good reputation and respect are worth much more than silver and gold. You see, we're foolish if we allow our priorities to get skewed by money and possessions. Jesus, I think, summed it up best when He told us in Luke 12 and verse 15, Life is not measured by how much one owns. But it is in our culture many times measured that way, isn't it? It's the one who has the most toys that wins. So the first money problem is the values problem. Number two is the security problem. The security problem. This is closely related to the first problem. When our values get twisted and we begin to think that money is the most important thing in life, then it isn't long before we begin to put our trust and our confidence in the money, our investments, our home, our things. The securities become the security of our lives. And how foolish that is. Look what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 11 and verse 28. Trust in your money and down you go. Trust in God and flourish as a tree. Proverbs 18, verse 11. The rich man thinks of his wealth as an impregnable defense, a high wall of safety. What a dreamer. What a dreamer. Let's read the Apostle Paul's warning. First uh, Timothy 6 and verse 17. Let's read this out loud together. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. You see, the question is, where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where is your confidence? Where is your security? So the second money problem is the security problem. Number three is the debt problem. The debt problem. Now almost everyone identifies to one degree or another with this one. In fact, statistics tell us that the average American now spends about $108 for every $100 that he or she earns. Do you know that? Think about that for a minute. Doesn't take a genius to figure out why we have such a huge debt problem in our country today. Look what Solomon wrote, Proverbs 22, verse 7. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. That's where so many of us are in our lives today. We're being held captives to our creditors. We're in bondage to our bills. We are, in fact, under the thumb of obligation to all the people we owe. Romans 13, verses 7 and 8, Paul gives us this advice about debt. Give everyone what you owe him. Let no debt remain outstanding. I like the way the King James Version, in fact, translates verse 8. simply says, owe no man anything. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. I mean, God's word on debt is don't. Don't. Just don't. We've got to learn to live within our means. And it's wise only to borrow on appreciating assets, not on depreciating liabilities. In fact, I would even go so far as to say most of the time, it's just wise not to borrow at all. So the third money problem is the debt problem. Number four is the greed problem. The Bible calls this covetousness. That's not a word we use very often outside of the context of church, is it? (laughs) Did you know that the 
the priests in the Catholic Church tell us that the least confessed sin in the confessional is this one. Covetousness. Nobody will admit that they have a greed problem. Covetousness is tricky because it's that insatiable desire that's never satisfied with what you now have. It always wants more. Do you ever notice that? (laughs) It's the one sin, in fact, that never is satisfied. Every sin maybe has a momentary, fleshly, carnal satisfaction to it, but not covetousness. You ask somebody who's greedy, how much more do you need? Oh, just one more dollar. Just one more. Look what Solomon wrote. Proverbs 15, verse 27. A greedy man brings trouble to his family. I wish I could frame that and put that in every newlyweds home. I'll be honest. I've seen so many families ruined by greed. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Don't weary yourself trying to get rich. Why waste your time? For riches appear as though they had the wings of a bird. (laughs) And Jesus Himself warned us in Luke 12 and verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Enough said. Fourth money problem is the greed problem. Number five is the dishonesty problem. You see, think about all these we've talked about so far. When our values get twisted and we begin to think that money and things are our security and we go into debt because of our greed, (laughs) often those first four problems we talked about will lead us then to pursue money in a dishonest way. And Proverbs cautions us against such folly. Proverbs 13, verse 11. Dishonest money dwindles away. It does, you know. Um, facts prove that. Why do, why do people that win the lottery, they're more poor a year later than they were when they won? Got to win that jackpot. And then all of a sudden you're worse off than you were. Proverbs 20, verse 17. Stolen bread stays sweet, but it turns to gravel... In the mouth. That's a, that's a word picture, isn't it? Proverbs 21, verse 6. Cheating to get rich is a foolish dream and no less than suicide. So, what are some dishonest means of pursuing money or possessions? There are many. Stealing, of course. Cheating on your income tax, which they tell us 60-some percent of us do. Padding your expense account at work. Illegally duplicating copyrighted materials, which, by the way, is now the number one crime in America. Copying paper, DVDs, CDs, etc. Gambling. Exploiting others for your own personal advantage. I mean, we could go on with the list. But such dishonesty is folly. In fact, let's read this out loud. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Read it with me, would you? The man who used to rob must stop robbing and start working to earn an honest living for himself. That's great advice right there. (laughs) You know? Put all the dishonest measures aside and let's just earn an honest living. That's what Paul is saying. So the fifth problem is the dishonesty problem. 
Money problems. Solomon identifies at least five of them here in Proverbs. The values problem, the security problem, the debt problem, the greed problem, the dishonesty problem. So how can we deal with these money problems? What steps can we take that we would be better stewards of the money and the things that God has entrusted to our care? Well, to find out, let's look at some money solutions. As the wisest and the richest man who ever lived, Solomon outlines, I think, five basic foundational solutions here in the book of Proverbs to help us become better stewards of all that God has entrusted to our care. Let's talk about them briefly. Number one is the audit solution. (laughs) Well, we don't like that word audit, do we? (laughs) I'm not talking about the IRS auditing you. I'm talking about you auditing you. The first principle is simply this, keep good records. And so many times, it's amazing, I'll have people tell me, I just don't know where all my money goes. And I want to say, well then find out. (laughs) Do a personal audit on yourself. Look at Solomon's advice. Proverbs 27, verses 23 and 24. Let's read this one together too. Riches can disappear fast, so watch your business interests closely. Know the state of your flocks and herds. See, back in that day, that was your assets and your liabilities. I mean, he's just saying, know your bottom line. (laughs) You ought to know all the time where you stand. Your balance sheet, if you will. Proverbs 23, verse 23 tells us, get the facts at any price. Now, what facts do you need? Well, at least these four. I wrote them down there in your notes. First of all, you ought to know what you owe. I'm amazed. Some people don't even know what they owe. (laughs) They get the bill and they pay it, but they really have never taken the time to sit down and write out a list of all the things that they owe, what the due date is, what the term is, what the interest rate is. I mean, you ought to know all of that. Secondly, you ought to know what you own. I mean, what do you, do you do? You really know? If you had a fire and everything was wiped out, would you know what you own? That's why insurance companies, by the way, tell us to take a video or pictures or something of everything and make a list of the value, where we bought it, etc. We ought to know what we own. Third, we ought to know what we earn. <laughs> People don't know what they earn. That's interesting to me. Uh, they can tell you the net, but they can't tell you the gross. They'll just tell you it is gross. <laughs> but they don't know the gross. They don't know what they're, you know, if they're working for a company, how much that company really is paying in order to have them in their employ. I mean, there's not only your paycheck, there's the benefits, and do you even know the percentages on all those? I mean, do you really know how much you are, how much interest you get on different interest-bearing accounts and so on? You ought to have a place that lists everything that you earn. And number four, you need to know what you spend. Now, that's the one that usually catches people. Young couples, when I'm counseling them, oftentimes when they're first getting started in their relationships, I, I tell them, get a 3 by 5 card, put it in your pocket, whatever, and every time in the next 30 days, every time you spend a penny, I don't care what it's for, a penny, you write it down. You date it, you write what it was, and what it was for. And I've had couples I've given that assignment to and they come back the next week for their next appointment and they're horrified. <laughs> I had no idea how much I was spending on super big golds at 7-Eleven. I had no idea how much I spent at Starbucks on coffee. Oh my goodness, no wonder I never have any money in my pocket. 
And it isn't long because they're having to write it down. It isn't long. They're, they're going to go buy something and they go, ah, forget it. And they don't, it's the best decision they ever made. You know what I'm saying? Track it. If you've never done that, that's a real enlightening experience. I do it every so often. Karen and I will take a month and say, okay, this is a month. We're going to do a little audit. And we're going to both write down everything we spend. It's amazing when we compare lists. Because I know she's going to look at mine. <laughs> and I'm going to look at hers. And uh, I'm a little more critical of her list. And she's a little more critical of mine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I saw another poster this past week. Recipe for disaster. Ignorance plus easy credit Amen. equals disaster. Count on it. So the first solution is the audit solution. Number two is the budget solution. This second stewardship principle is simply this. Plan your spending. To fail to plan is to plan to fail. Look at these two Proverbs. Proverbs 21 verse 5. Plan carefully and you will have plenty. If you act too quickly, you will never have enough. Isn't that true? Uh, especially when it comes to impulsive buying, because we're impulsive buyers, all of us to certain extents, with, with our own little pet peeves, you know what I'm saying? And so I'll tell, I'll tell people, try the 24-hour principle. You just got to have it. Well, just go home and sit on it for 24 hours and see if you still want it that much the next day. You know what I'm saying? It'll save you from a lot of grief. Proverbs 21, verse 20. Stupid people spend money as fast as they get it. Amazingly enough, we're told that less than 10% of the households in America today have a family budget. That means that over 90% of us have absolutely no plan for our spending. I've listed a couple of key Christian websites there in your notes. If you're wanting to get some help in that area, Dave Ramsey's site, Larry Burkett's Crown site, both of these guys have devoted their lives as Christian counselors in the area of finance. and They have a host of books and forums and software and other things to help you manage your finances. Great places. If you've never gone, go visit those websites. So the second money solution is the budget solution. Number three is the savings solution. The saving solution. This third principle is simply this. Invest for the future. <clears throat> Read Proverbs 21 and verse 20 out loud with me from the good news. The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Yeah, it's back to that same one. I took it from a different version because I thought we needed to hear it more than once. Here's the facts. Do you know the average Japanese saves 25% of his or her income? The average European, 18% of his or her income? The average American, less than 1%. What about you? When are you going to start investing for the future? When are you going to start regularly and consistently contributing to a savings account? I, I, I say this, I preach this, and people, I can hear them say, I can't afford to save anything. And I want to reply back, you can't afford to not save something. I mean, start with something, even if it is small. Look what Proverbs 13 verse 11 advises us. He who gathers money little by little makes it grow. That's the secret, little by little. You'll never save anything if you don't start with something. 
And so the third money solution is the savings solution. Invest for the future. Number four is the contentment solution. The contentment solution. The fourth principle in a nutshell, enjoy what you now have. Boy, listen to me on this one. Proverbs 21 verse 17 reminds us the pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. Don't miss that word pursuit. Our problem is that we're so busy pursuing new and better things that we don't take the time to enjoy the things we now have. You see, we've bought into this little lie that says that things are what is going to make us happy anyway. If I just had a bigger house, or if I just drove a little nicer car, if I could just get this promotion or this raise, then I'd be happy. And so we work and we work and we run here and there, and we get sucked into this frantic, stressed out lifestyle, and we justify it all by saying, well, it's only temporary. <laughs> Who are you kidding? Yeah, it's only temporary. You're going <laughs> to die of a heart attack. <laughs> Don't think you have a problem in this area? Let me give you a simple test. Complete the following sentence. I will be happy once I have... And you fill in the blank. Now, if you attempted to fill that blank in with anything other than Jesus, you just admitted that you have a problem with contentment. Because I want want us to understand that happiness, folks, is in the present tense, not the future tense. And it's all about enjoying the journey. (laughs) Happiness is not a destination. It's a journey. And you choose now to be happy and to enjoy what God has now entrusted to your care, not what you might hope to have someday in the future. I want you to write this principle down in your notes this morning. I left a couple blanks there for you to do it. My yearnings will always exceed my earnings. <laughs> in fact, would you, would you say that out loud with me? I want us to say this one out loud. My yearnings will always exceed my earnings. Just believe it, folks. It's true. Paul wrote in Philippians 4 and verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Notice he said, I learned the secret of being content. He had to learn it. Contentment, please understand, contentment is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior. We have to learn how to become content. It's a choice. And we need to learn that secret. And we need to enjoy what we now have. Enjoy the journey. Be happy on the way. So the fourth money solution is the contentment solution. Enjoy what you now have. Number five is the tithing solution. (laughs) Yeah, you knew I'd get to that one, right? Simply stated, this final principle is this. Give to God first. Give to God first. Let's read these two verses out loud together. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Would you read them with me? Honor the Lord by giving Him the first part of all your income, and He will fill your barns with wheat and barley and overflow your vats with the finest wines. Yeah. And the key words here, I think are the words first part. 
See, our problem is we're tippers, not tithers. <laughs> we give God the leftovers after we've paid the bills or spent money on whatever it is we want, rather than giving Him the first part before we pay the bills. He's an afterthought. He's not the number one thing we think about when we come into income. By the way, did you notice that promise here in verse 10? He will fill your barns with wheat and barley and overflow your wine vats with the finest wines. Don't miss those words. Fill and overflow. In other words, if we give God the first part of our income, if we tithe 10% off the top before anything else, God promises that He will fill our needs to overflowing. It's God's math. You've heard me talk about this before. 90% is greater than 100%. What do I mean by that? If you give God the 10% off the top, the 90% that you have left over will stretch further than if you had kept 100% for yourself. That's God's math. Several of you can testify to that. I can testify to that, how it works. I can't explain it, but I can testify that it works. But see, really, when you think about it, it all comes down to trust. That's the big issue here. Do we trust God that when we give Him the first part, the 10% off the top, believing that the 90% remains, that we'll stretch further than the 100% for ourselves? Do we really believe that? Do we honestly believe? Will we put God to the test? To the test? Yeah, that's what He said. Malachi 3 and verse 10 sums it up. God said, bring the whole tithe, not part of it, all of it, the whole thing. And God says, test me in this. By the way, you know that's the only place in the Bible that I know of that God invites us to test Him? Everywhere else we're told, don't test God. (laughs) Here we're told, test Him. Test Him on this tithing thing and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Do we believe that? That's the question. It's, It's really a matter of trust. Am I going to trust money and try to work it out myself or am I going to trust God? That's the question. So the fifth money solution is the tithing solution. Give to God. First, well, how can we become better stewards of our money and possessions? As the wisest and the richest man who ever lived, Solomon gives us five basic foundational solutions to our money problems. The audit solution, keep good records. The budget solution, plan your spending. The savings solution, invest for the future. The contentment solution, enjoy what you now have. And the tithing solution, give to God first. Life by the book. This morning we've taken a closer look at what the Bible says about money. And believe me, we've barely scratched the surface. There is, however, perhaps no greater measure of our spiritual health, no truer indicator of where we are in our walk with Christ than our stewardship, how we handle our finances, how we manage our money and possessions. We must make every effort to avoid these money problems, the value, security, debt, greed, and dishonesty problems. And instead, we need to put into practice these money solutions in our daily lives, the audit, budget, savings, contentment, and tithing solutions. Now... As we wrap up today's lesson, you think I forgot about this text, didn't you? (laughs) I want us to revisit it one more time. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 12. We pick it up with verse 41. Let's read it again. 
Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. <laughs> How would you feel about giving? If we had everybody parade up here this morning and put their money in the offering plate, and we asked Jesus to come visit us, and if Jesus just stood here and watched, how would you feel about that? Can I let you in on a little clue? He's doing that. <laughs> Do we realize that? Hello? Where two or three are gathered in His name, He's there in the midst of us. He's right here with us. Every time when that offering tray is being passed, He knows exactly what you're doing. You're not fooling Him. <laughs> and then it goes on and says, Many rich people threw in large amounts. A poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And notice it says, Calling His disciples to Calling us. Are you His disciple? Okay. Just want to make sure. Calling us to Him, Jesus said, I want to give you a little object lesson here. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others combined. Because they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. I think this little video kind of sums this up so well. Let's watch it together. In Mark 12, 43, Jesus comes to the temple with the purpose of teaching us a lesson about giving. He deliberately sits in front of the offering and watches as people put their money in. Many rich people come and put in large amounts of money, but Jesus wasn't looking at the amount. He was looking at their hearts. Finally, after all the rich people had showed off their tithes, a poor widow comes in and puts in two small coins with only a few pennies. But this is what Jesus had been waiting for, and He doesn't waste the moment. He quickly calls His disciples together to teach them about the kind of giving that pleases God. He explains how giving out of your abundance isn't what God is interested in, because it doesn't help you rely on Him. This is what the rich people were doing, but the widow was different, and the difference was in what she was trusting in. The widow trusted God, knowing that He would stand true to His promise of providing for her needs, while the rich people trusted in their money. Jesus' point was that giving isn't about the amount, it's about the sacrifice. What and how we sacrifice will be different for each person, but we all have the ability to make sacrifices in our giving. The danger comes when we follow the path of the first group of givers. We give to look good, or we give out of a perceived obligation, or we give as a means to some other end. But God isn't interested in this kind of giving. The only giving that interests God is the kind that makes Him a priority above our money. This is why what we use our money for is such a big indicator of where our hearts are at. When we sacrifice something we want and give instead to God, we show that He has the top spot in our hearts. The poor widow trusted God and gave everything she had to Him. And this is why Jesus makes a point to highlight her sacrificial giving. Because as we follow her example, she leads us right to Jesus. I just thought that summed that up so well for us to look at it that way. <laughs> 